God, you are great and gracious above all else. I hope that you would teach and speak into our hearts how valuable it is to not only be known by you, but to know you. Lord, I pray that you would not let us forget your your humility by coming in the flesh, your condescension from the heavenlies to take on flesh and to be tempted as we are. Lord, I pray that your spirit and your strength that you modeled in this scene would be present with your people. Lord, I'd ask that you would even help us wake up every morning to seek your strength and your presence. Because apart from you, there is nothing good that we can do or even desire to do. So we come confessing our weaknesses, our desire to do that which is ungodly too many times, our desire, Lord, to, uh, to not seek you, to not enjoy you as supreme treasure of our lives and our hearts. And that has led us into multiple things this week that aren't becoming of your children. So please cleanse us from this unrighteousness. Enable us, empower us to walk in a way, a manner worthy. And Lord, remind us that you are always present to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we begin to look at the first half of Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at this three different times, namely so that we uh, can slow down and understand just how Jesus is resisting the devil. Because we're told in James, right, that if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And what do we see at the end of Jesus' temptation? He flees. There was no hand-to-hand combat. There was, there was no special uh, um, phrase that Jesus used to rebuke Satan. He used the word of God. And you would say, well, that's easy for Jesus. He is the word of God. What's the big deal about him being able to resist temptation versus us? He's got it. He's, he is it. Well, that's another portion of this that you have to keep in mind when you read and meditate on this. Jesus is in the flesh, right? If he's in the flesh, then he is submitting himself to the, to the ways of humanity, not to the sin nature of humanity, okay? His father is God. It's not Adam. But he is understanding, especially in this scene, what it means to want to escape the trial or suffering. The the greater degree that Jesus faces temptation comes in this. He's also God. So he can end this temptation any time he wants. He can feed himself with anything. Because he's the word of God, he can speak it and it'll be there, right? Right? Satan knows that. He can lessen 
the temptation of the trial at any moment because he's God. You and I can't do that. I mean, we can by sinning. We can try and escape it. But, but Jesus is submitting himself to the will of the Father to test his heart through the schemes of the devil to tempt him to sin. Okay? So God's testing, Satan's tempting, but the sovereign rule of God reigns over Satan's tempting, so it becomes used for good, it becomes a test in his flesh as a man. Also realize the parallels between Jesus here in the wilderness and Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus is succeeding where Adam fails. Jesus, in his environment, it's not perfect. Jesus, in his environment, he's hungry. Jesus is, in his environment, feeling the effects of a fallen world around him. He has placed himself in quite a different scene than Adam was in. But there's two different outcomes. Which also remind us that the context that you may find yourself in in the midst of the trial isn't the thing. Okay? Well, if only I lived over there, lived over there, it would be a lot easier to resist temptation. No. It's easier to resist temptation when you have the heart of Christ that finds complete faith and confidence in the word of God despite what he's facing. Despite what he's facing. And I would submit to you that what Jesus is dealing with here is far more intense than the temptation that you and I would deal with. For all those reasons. Plus the fact, in verse 1, there's an indefinite article before the word devil, indicating that it is the devil, the liar, the serpent. Right? This is Satan himself throwing out what he thinks would be most effective in tempting the God-man to sin. So verse 1, this is immediately following his baptism, right? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he begins here his ministry as the Holy Spirit has seen <coughs> surrounding Jesus in great awesome glory as God has spoken from heaven about how beloved this son of his is. Now Jesus, as a man, is living life led by the Spirit. And the Spirit does what? It leads him into the wilderness. One of the greatest misconceptions about the Christian life, especially when you begin the Christian life, is that the Spirit is going to lead you uh, into the promised land immediately. That you'll have green pastures and, <coughs> and flowing waters and milk and honey. And that's not the case. If God's, not only his goal, but if his will is to make you, conform you into the image of his Son... That kind of means, in layman's terms, he's got to beat the sin nature out of you. Okay? And the way that he does that 
is by allowing and using the trials that you may go through to do that. This is exactly what he was doing with Israel in the wilderness. There's no reason they had to be there 40 years. That's been made pretty clear. The reason they were there is what we read in Deuteronomy 8. He is seeking what's in their heart. He's testing whether or not they will believe and follow God despite what they're looking at in their context. God has said certain things to them, made certain promises to them, and he is, he is revealing to them, he already knows what's in their heart, but he's revealing to Israel what's in their heart. Do you believe God? This is the question that, however or not you're answering it internally, depends on if you're righteous or not. Because we can go all the way back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and see that Abraham, right, the father of Israel, is righteous not just because he's going to be the father of Israel. He's righteous because he believes what God has said and promised even though he doesn't see it. And Romans 8 tells us, right, that who hopes for what he sees? But if you hope for what you don't see, you wait for it with patience. So if we're hoping in the things that God has said, in God himself receiving the presence of his dwelling and glory and perfection forever, then we endure with great patience the things that we are called to endure. Jesus is not only called to endure what he's going to be tempted by in the wilderness, he's called to overcome it, to conquer it. Sometimes you and I as Christians believe that we're just supposed to um, endure here on this earth until heaven. Like, we're just supposed to, you know, go back and forth with our sin, and at the end of the day, you know, eventually we'll be saved and we won't have to deal with it anymore. No, you and I are called by faith, by believing what God has said, to be more than conquerors, Romans 8. You are supposed, sp- supposed to put to death the deeds of the body. That is what is happening in sanctification. It is not simply just trying to make it. We're, we're, we're killing stuff. We're overcoming things. We're destroying strongholds by his power. I'll go off on a rabbit trail real quick. I don't know if you've noticed but there's a little more weight on me than there should be, okay, health-wise. I told my wife the other day, I said, you know, I feel like defeated. Like I'm just going to have to suffer with being the weight that I don't want to be for a long time. I just don't feel like I can overcome it. And you know what she said? It was kind of like a dumb moment. She was, she was preaching to the preacher. She said, there was a time in her life where she needed to lose weight. She said, you know what I did? And I was like, I mean, I think I've heard what you've done, but go ahead and tell me. I didn't expect her to say what she said. She said, every morning I woke up and I prayed for self-control. That was it. I was like, duh, right? Isn't that a fruit of the Spirit? You know, to stop feeding my face with stuff that's not good for me is an act of self-control of which I have none in the flesh, but if, according to the Spirit, 
I live and believe what God has said, then I can ask him and I'll receive it. Self-control. To overcome these things. I don't, I don't know what it is that you're dealing with. With your sin or whatever. But I know this. If you ask of God and believe in what he has said in accordance with that very thing, you will receive what you ask for. That's a promise from Scripture. Now, that is in contrast to the prosperity people who will tell you if you ask for um, more money, you'll get it, or, or more prestige, you'll get it, or whatever it may be. Now, God may do some of those things for you according to his will, but what he's really after is your sanctification. You're being made like Christ. That is the goal. And if we're going to be like Christ, let's watch Christ be Christ here in the scriptures. And, and what he's showing us in the flesh is how to rely on God. A few weeks ago, you had uh, that fighter verse 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. King Asa was that one that he found. In 2 Chronicles 14, 15, and 16, we have detailed why King Asa has that blameless heart towards God. And you know what it is? Context clues tell us that it was because he relied on God. And then he has two occurrences towards the end of his life where he's, he's got these armies that are coming against him and he fails to rely on God. And then he's got this foot disease. I don't, it may be gout. And he fails to rely on God there. So the blameless heart is the heart that relies on God. Why does it make you blameless? Because if you rely on God, you listen and remember and seek out what he said, and you do and obey that, which would be blameless, to follow the commands of the Lord. That's why... In John 15, those who abide in Christ and love him, obey his commands. It's not because we want to be these goody-two-shoe servants or whatever. Because we want to live. And there's only life in him. And in what he said, so Jesus is living a life now that's led by the Spirit, wherever the Spirit is going to lead him. And so the first place is to be tempted by the devil. Okay? Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, comma, he was hungry. I like that sentence. It's funny, right? <laughs> like 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah, he'd be hungry. I can't even fast for 40 minutes before I'm hungry. And he's going 40 days and 40 nights. Obviously, hungry. Do you know why people fast? They fast so that they can give a particular focus to prayer. And that's a really simple way to say it. So the first thing Jesus does with his time in the wilderness is dedicate it to seeking and speaking to the Father. The first thing he does. Now I imagine this, that as he's led into the wilderness, he's got time. 
So what can we take away from that? Well, how do we dedicate what we have to the Lord in any given moment? In this particular season in Jesus' life, he has time. So he's decided that is for the Father. He could spend his time in the wilderness exercising his survival skills and, <coughs> and you know, uh, seeking out different kinds of animals and all this sort of stuff and just kind of drifting off into no man's land in his mind and, you know. Instead, he decides, no, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my body, soul, and mind submit itself to seeking the Lord. He is, he is, his, the Spirit's in control here. It's not his flesh. If anybody's ever fasted, you know that something else has to take over than your flesh. Your flesh wants to do nothing else but eat. So the Spirit is leading not only where he goes, but what he does. And he's hungry. Forty days and forty nights is about the exact limit a human body can go without food. So he's at the limit. He is, I, I can't even imagine the weakness in flesh that he would feel. You know, <clears throat> there's all these different discussions on health and stuff these days and keto and uh, carnivore, I mean, all this stuff. And, you know, after you fast for a certain amount of time, like three or four days, you, you, your body kind of goes into what's called ketosis and you're supposed to feel really good, you know. Okay, now I'll go 40 days. And now how's your body just, it's just wasting away. It just begins to lose everything it had to sustain itself. And so that's where he is in the flesh. That's what he's submitted to in the spirit to do. Also notice 40 days and 40 nights is, is not a coincidence with what we see um, Israel going through for 40 years in the, in the wilderness, in the desert. There's a testing for both that's going to reveal different results for each because of where their heart is. So verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. So number one, recognize Satan's strategy here. He obviously knows Jesus. Okay. He knows what's occurred now that he's on earth. That there's been an incarnation in human flesh who he is. And so what Satan is attempting to do is to appeal to some sort of pride that he thinks Jesus could have in the flesh because he's also God. So he's saying, look, you don't have to go through this. Understand that you're hungry, that you're feeling what human hunger is. Understand all of that, but you don't, you don't have to do that, you know. This, these rocks... Under your command, under your word, they can become bread. Better bread than anyone else could ever make. So 
I mean, if you are the son of God, just feed yourself. It's, it's your ability to do so. Everything has to fall under your command. This is, this is his only, this is a pretty good attempt, but it's his only reasonable attempt on Jesus to get him off track. But he's going to learn quickly uh, that that will be impossible. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, wait, let's start in Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 8, God is humbling Israel. That's the reason he gives for them being in the wilderness for 40 years. He's humbling them. He's making them realize that they rely solely on him. That everything they have, everything they're looking forward to, comes from him. In fact, I think that's one of the main themes of Deuteronomy. Is that Moses is preparing them to go into the promised land, and they have to, what? The key word of Deuteronomy is remember. Remember where this comes from. Remember how I sustained you. Remember where your life comes from. Remember where you get your, your hope and your peace and your protection and security. Remember where that comes from. (coughs) And Israel fails. And Satan is hoping that Jesus will also fail in accordance with that. But Jesus came to do this. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He's telling the Philippians, have the mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He's God, right? But in the flesh, he's humbling himself to the will of the Father, being led by the Spirit to obey whatever he commands, which is why he's in the wilderness. If he's God, he knows all things. He knows, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound like a very good time. I'm not here for very long, so might as well enjoy myself. No, he is submitting himself to the will of the Father, being led by the Spirit to obey whatever he commands him to do. Are we there in our hearts? Are are we so submitted to the will of God, dependent on him and his word, that when the Spirit leads us into where the Spirit leads us or what the Spirit leads us to do, we can do it, even though it seems difficult, even though it seems unwelcoming to our desire for comfort and self-preservation, are we willing, because we believe God and trust Him above all things, that when He leads and when He calls us to obey His commands, we can do it? Well, it all depends on how much you trust God, how much you love Him. And so we're going to see, obviously, that Jesus is completely submitted, completely uh, loving, and completely trusting of the Father. 
If you don't trust him, then you won't follow him. It's the same as having kids. And when you ask your kids to do something they've never done before, and they just won't believe you, right? They just, they're just like, no, that's not how it's going to work. It's not going to go that way. No, I won't do that because I don't believe what you're telling me. It's the same thing we do to God. And maybe you have the question in your mind, well, what is he telling me to do? What's he telling me to do? Well, I know this for sure. That he is telling you to listen to his son. That he is telling you to love one another in certain ways. That the Bible is replete with all the things that God is telling us to be and to do. It's like the first time I had to exercise Matthew 18 that I had to go to a brother or sister because of their offense and, and address it. I didn't want to do that. Who wants? Some of you like conflict because you're odd, but some of us don't. It's not a fun thing. But I was like, you know what? That's just, I have to go to them. The Lord has commanded. And you know what? The outcome is his. If it goes well, Matthew 18 tells me, God tells me, I'm going to gain a brother or sister. Uh, if it doesn't go well, I was faithful. That's all that matters. But you obey him. He calls the shots. Whatever the outcome is, that's the outcome. Do you trust that? It's hard. It's hard. But the more you get to know him, right, the more you will love and trust him. I promise you. I, the, I guarantee you. So Jesus shows us he loves him. Satan's made a a decent attempt, probably the only attempt he can make. So what's Jesus say to that? Verse 4. But he answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's a hungry man saying that. You know what Jesus says in John 4.34? That's a funny scene to me, too, in John 4.34. His, his disciples realize that there's, he needs something to eat. And he's like, why well, have food you don't know about? And then they look at each other and they're like, where did he get food? We've been with him the whole time. I think that's really funny. And then Jesus he says, no, the, the, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish the work that he has for me to accomplish. He, he lives on the fact that he belongs to God and, and lives to carry out whatever God has for him to carry out. Obviously, he knows exactly what that is. But in the flesh, the same goes for you and I. That we live in the will of God. We live to do the will of God. We live to know the will of God. We, we live on what he has said. The hopes, the promises, the commands, all of it. It's all required for our 
sustaining and growth in the Christian life. We need the word first and foremost. I had a professor who, he was uh, appealing to the weakness that most of us feel and being consistent in our daily communion and seeking of the Lord, which some of you would call devotions. And he said, you know, I decided that, that by this, from Deuteronomy 8.3 and what Jesus first used to repel the attacks of the evil one, that the first and most important nutrition that I get every day should be the Word of God. Therefore, breakfast doesn't start until I've received my first meal. And that was a way to remind himself that he lives first and foremost by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That we eat this. That oftentimes when I pray before we preach or whatever, is that God would, would cause us to feast here. That we would eat well here. And only by feasting on the word and abiding in the word do we grow and get healthier. And, and health as a Christian looks like this. Deeper faith in God. Because I would argue that Jesus has the healthiest spirit of anybody that's ever been in the flesh. Because he completely trusts and relies on the Father. Deuteronomy 8 is amazing for several reasons, but mainly for the fact that as we're reading this, as those who exist 2,000 years after the New Testament was written, that, that we see the foreshadowing there that we know that, okay, Israel and every other man isn't going to do that. Live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We know that that's not going to be who we are. We can even go to Psalm 1 and see that, that one who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. Man, I'd like to be that guy, but I don't do that. So you fast forward to Matthew 4, and you're like, that's the one. That's who does that. Now, if you're going to be conformed into his image, you will learn to do this. You will grow to a place where you do this. Isn't it amazing? And if Jesus is doing this with the first shot and with every subsequent shot that, that Satan takes at him, isn't it amazing that he appeals to what's written? to the scriptures. First reaction is that, which would require us to know what? What's written? Which is the whole thing behind the fighter verses, is that we would know what's written. I want to tell you, I know this for a fact, because I read stuff like this. Uh, Satan hates the fact that you are, if you are, Memorizing scripture. Because that makes you not as susceptible to his attacks. He doesn't like that. So he hates what we're doing here. Which should cause you to do it all the more. 
because it's a good indication that it's godly if Satan hates it. And it's a good indication that we would need it if we're going to be able to not only survive, but conquer as Jesus conquers. And we become more than conquerors, how? Through Jesus. So not only did he do this on our behalf, as he kind of uh, succeeds where Adam fails on behalf of mankind, but he gives us his spirit to do these things. Listen, scripture, memory, or memory of any kind, reading, studying, is not natural to me. But I live on this fact. He will conform me to the image of Christ, and so those things become possible by the Spirit, not in the flesh of me, but in the Spirit that now lives within me. That's the whole key to the Christian life. Is like, okay, yeah, you're, you're a sinner, you've got weaknesses in a billion areas, you know, welcome to earth. But we don't live according to the flesh if you're in Christ. So you could encounter the schemes of the evil one and you could repel it. There, listen, it, it's undeniable that Satan would be a million times stronger than us, thousands of years older than us, wiser than us, and this fact is what he knows and what he knows how to do. <laughs> how can it be possible that James tells us, if you resist him, he'll flee? If he's that much greater than us. Because something is greater that lives within us. It's his spirit. By knowing the word of God, we are founded in his promises and his truth. So that when error comes, or when attacks come, or when temptation comes, we recognize it for what it is, and we repel it because of what it is. By the word of God that we believe by faith in who? Jesus. Some of you I trust. I trust in the uh, specialties or the things that you've learned in your careers or your hobbies or whatever. So if you tell me to do this, whatever this is, then it would be wise of me to listen to you and to trust that the outcome will be what you said it would. And so I do that. So if God, who is perfectly righteous and holy, who has proven to us that from the beginning he has ordered the events of history to work in accordance with his goodwill for his glory and the good of those who are called according to his purpose, then why do we ever not believe him? I don't know where that is in your life you don't believe him or where you failed to believe him. You can deal with that with God, but Understand this, this is, this is part of our human experience, not Jesus's, because when he is confronted with the fact uh, that there is real temptation in this world, he is quickly reminded and certainly founded on the fact that God's truth is far more powerful and, and far greater and, and far more worth his complete trust and confidence and faith than the current circumstance. 
And so he models it. And so I'll stop there because I want to look at all four of these together, or all three of these separately. But the first thing he does is repel the attack of Satan with what's written. And what's written is what he lives on, lives by. That's his bread. So I pray that you would uh, submit yourself to the Lord, that you would speak that to him, that you would ask him for what you need, and then we'll stand and sing.